0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for being with us again at the New Books Network. Today we have Rachel O'Doyer talking about her book, Tokens, The Future of Money by Verso. Rachel O'Doyer is a lecturer at the School of Visual Culture at the National College of the Arts and Design in Dublin. She was a Fulbright Scholar at UC Irvine and the Microsoft Research Labs in Cambridge, Massachusetts. She is currently a fellow at Connect, the Center for Networks and Telecommunications of Trinity Trinity College, Dublin, and she co-authors a neural magazine and has written for outlets such as Convergence, MIT Press, and the London Review of Books. She has created a number of exhibitions of digital practice that explore the intersection of art and blockchain. Rachel, thank you very much for being with us at Nimbutton Network today.
1: Thanks, Emilian, for having me, Fernando.
0: Um, Rachel, you have written a fascinating book about uh, money from a com- very different perspective from what it's mainstream. And congratulations for the book being short long-listed for the financial yeah. times
1: long-listed yeah I don't, I don't think it'll be shortlisted, so i have to make i'll have to make as much boss of the long list as i can
0: <laughs> but before we go into the into the book and and uh, uh, how is it that you became interested in studying money from um, a very different perspective because you're not an economist you're you're working up uh, in um, a very different school and yet and that's what it's a big strength in the book with different perspective. But uh, how was it that you became an academic and and then uh, became interested in 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 money and money like things?
1: Yes, yeah, so I guess it's it's kind of a strange story because you know as you point out, my background isn't in economics. Um, so my BA actually was in fine art with a uh, like a focus on digital media, and I guess uh, so. Towards the end of that degree, I realized I was more interested in in the ideas that artworks provoked than in actually making the art myself. I started to change course and went on to do academic research in the social and political implications of internet technologies. And before I became interested in money, then I was a grad student doing a PhD in the Department of Engineering in Trinity College in what I guess would now call surveillance capitalism. And graduating into a recession, I thought about money in terms of having an, and not having it, uh, and I understood that society was maybe stratified in terms of the haves and have-nots, not have but I guess they never really stopped to think about what money was or did. And then around 2012, I came across an art project called Punk Money by Eli Gotthill and Gotthill wanted to use Twitter as the basis for promissory notes, where users could issue value to one another in the form of a 140-character tweet. And I guess with the best artworks I suddenly woke up to something that was right in front of me so punk money made me question what money was and could be but it also really really made me realize that money was a media technology so it was something that rides the rails of information and communication technologies and that these technologies were shaping what money could be now and in the future so that sort of made me really yeah I guess shift course and start to study money
0: And that rings um a little bit uh, ahead um something that i'd like to to discuss later on when we talk about the book but it's the first quote with which you start the book which is you know what money is and i don't think that we really know what money is do we
1: no no Um, yeah
0: but but okay let's let's wait uh, a little bit on that um let's make a small parenthesis here and tell us what sort of advice you would give to um, other scholars particularly early career researchers around um you're know, writing a book selecting a publisher and if you think that there is you know a, a particular challenges from as, as uh, from from a gender perspective to to doing this or or not
1: Oh, yeah. I, oh God, I, I'm going to I'm just thinking, like, probably don't do so many of the things I did because Tokens is actually my second book. So I have an unpublished first manuscript that I may never finish uh, where I did everything wrong. So for that first book, I think I rushed into publishing a book project before I was really sure what I wanted to do. So everyone sort of told me, oh, you should definitely, you know, the first thing you should do after your PhD is publish a book. Um, so I, I feel like I really kind of dived into that before I was even sure what I wanted to do, even sure if I wanted to do it. So that might be my first bit of advice to maybe take your time. I think a lot of people told me to just publish my PhD for the sake of it. You know, like you you won't like your first book, et cetera. Everyone hates it, you know, just get it out there and forget about it. And my my personal advice, you know, which obviously you can take with a pinch of salt would be maybe not to listen to that because uh, a book is always going to be a big project. You know, it's not something to just get out of the way for the sake of it. And if you're not sure about the publishers, you're not sure about the fit with the series or the approach, then maybe listen to those feelings. So I had niggling doubts the whole way through book one. And I think I was very careful then with book two with tokens as a consequence um. So Tokens was a very different experience. I was really careful, I guess, to think about what publisher would fit right, not just what would be prestigious for me, you know, for my career. I was just very much like, what is the right publisher for this? I was very careful not to contort the project at any point or compromise it just to get a contract and just to get it over the line. And those were lessons that I learned, you know, a very hard way, I guess, in months and months of of work, you know, with with another book, which actually I am kind of um, I am probably publishing with first. So, you know, I'm just trying to decide whether I want to put any more work into that other book now or if it's just like, oh, too hard to go back to. So, yeah, I don't know whether that's a good answer. It's mostly like what not to do rather than what to do
0: yeah yes, but <clears throat> there is there is an in 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 a common theme that I find when I make this question is whether you kind of kind of a divide, particularly the u s people who are writing books in in social sciences say, well, don't do it because you're not going to do anything for your career. don't do it as an early career scholar it's not gonna do anything for your career wait until you get tenure uh, as that is a system particularly in the US and then um, when I talk to people in Europe that's a little bit more you know that's less of a, an issue um, and it seems that you're more in this second camp where it it you know it was it was something that you thought it was good um, for your career for your especially for your personal development rather than um you know having clear career implications as to whether you're detracting from from um progress because you're you're investing in a large project you investing yeah. time in a large project
1: Cause, yeah because you asked me I guess about the gendered aspect and I guess one of the most uh stressful or upsetting things about doing that first book maybe was as he, exactly as you say it was the, that investment of time as an early career researcher is, is very difficult because it doesn't really pay dividends early on in the way publishing articles does. And I definitely remember feeling quite stressed out that I was working on this book that may or may not come good when I should have been publishing articles. And then um, I had a child, you know, in the middle of all of that. And, you know, it was that kind of horrible feeling of these are all big, long projects that aren't, you know, aren't conducive to actually uh, building a CV. So yeah, maybe I would be more inclined then to, to go with your, um, your researchers who advise it as, as, as something that isn't always that conducive to early career research. My, uh, one thing I also feel is like as I got older, I got more confident in the way I write and confident in kind of moving away from like a really academic voice. Um. And maybe that's partly that I'm in an art college, though, as well, where where they're more open to different kinds of research as well. But I feel like if I'd written it when I was a bit younger, it might have been, you know, a little bit more of an academic text, uh, whereas I wanted actually to write something that was very accessible.
0: And and congratulations on that, because it is very accessible and and you deal, as I said, with, you know, in a very a different way in a fresh uh, new way to to the issues that uh, the digitalization of payments have have uh, raised and, and and as you have explained it it has to do with this thing that we call rails that we you know uh, really don't know where where the concept comes from but it's just what what we think of how things are moving from one place to the other <clears throat> sorry um and you start as as we've briefly mentioned with with a quote. And and the first part of the quote is, well, you know what money is. Well, it's actually the end of the quote, it's you know what money is. And and let me then bring the question again. Do we really know what money is? Or are we just talking about a small um, part of what is money and, and focusing on the on the payments side?
1: I yeah, I mean. I I'm a notebook keeper, uh, so I like keeping kind of physical notebooks with ideas. And I was really interested to find notebooks that I had for maybe like seven years ago with post-its or diagrams for maybe a book that looked something like tokens. And it was, as you say, circling around a space that was money like or money ish and circling around the same questions, which are still very much unresolved for me. What happens to money when platforms or ICTs are, as you put it, you know, the rails for exchange media or for money like things? What happens? Yeah. What happens when these companies that have a legacy, maybe not money issuance or in payments, but in information and communications become banks or become the rails for values. And in some ways, those are very much the questions that drove tokens and they're the questions that are kind of unresolved because this space is unresolved. Um, I think I came across a really nice quote by, I think it was Hayek and I'm going to paraphrase it here, but, you know, he, he said that, you know, it's, there's not like a distinction between sort of things that aren't money and things that are, it's sort of like, um, gosh, I'm not really going to probably do justice now, but that, you know, we have all kinds of exchange media from, you know, quote unquote, publicly mandated or real money. Uh, and then kind of all other kinds of exchange media and that kind of shade imperceptibly in into like things that are not money, but even I don't know what what even are these not money things? when I try and think of something that you know couldn't absolutely couldn't be used as exchange media, i I get a bit stuck, like my son, who is actually. The author of that quote at the beginning, so I asked him when he was four. I actually asked a lot of children, um, what was money. Uh, I ended up just using his quote in the end, um, but uh, he's the one actually who 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 gave that quote. But he and his friends currently are are collecting uh, used vapes. Do you know vapes like those kind of single use? They're collecting those off the street at the moment, and they have some weird like prestige value um, gift economy sort of working around those. So. I mean, anything can be money. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Sorry, I've gone all over the place there. But uh,
0: But no, yes, are you the thing? Sorry, I interrupted.
1: No, I, I guess I was just, to come back to your question, I do think that this sort of distinction between money and not money uh, has really uh expanded you know with with the proliferation of uh, Icts of platforms issuing new kinds of money like things, and so the distinction between what is and is not money has has really blurred, you know, to the point where it's always been a confusing question, and now it's sort of ever more so. and I also think and I don't think this is something that's oh no it is something actually asking the introduction. I've kind of left wondering whether publicly mandated or real money was only ever. blip like you know if we look kind of historically at sort of a like primitive in quotes or pre-monetary economies we also see the proliferation of all sorts of weird exchange media and if we look at kind of monetary economies today you know we have all sorts of weird exchange media like um virtual gifts on TikTok, you know, uh, Twitch bits uh, for Amazon streamers, Chatterbait tokens, you know, um, hashtags, all sorts of kind of strange money-like things. Um, so maybe was, was real or publicly mandated money only sort of a blip in between these kind of broader token economies?
0: And that is basically what you're trying to get your head around or explain in the book in, a, in, a, in an open way and pointing, if, uh, pointing to these other things that are not, as you've called it, publicly mandated money, which are still used as, as forms of exchange and, and forms of carrying value and and so on and so forth, and, and the proliferation of this. Around the, the, the digital economy, so it's much more than than blockchain. It's much more than vouchers. It's 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 uh, it's uh, and and you are because we 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 know each other from some time. You you are well aware of of Lana Short's uh, ideas about uh, this um, creation of, of of small communities and the use of 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 for a very particular small communities yeah huge, yeah and that is coming also a little bit uh, around the book but what was the story that you wanted to tell and why would you want to tell to a large audience why why would they be interested in in this story that you're trying to to tell them with tokens
1: yeah i think story is definitely the right word for me so i teach in an art college and that means I do more teaching than, for example, my husband, who's also an academic and teaches in a traditional university. Um, so, um, you know, in tokens, I, I I wanted to sort of show off my research, but I also want to tell interesting stories, like stories of streamers who are eking out of living on platforms like Twitch or TikTok, stories about money burners who are resisting, you know, CBDCs, digital currencies or... Weird histories of special tokens and the shopkeepers that turned a blind blind eye to them, or you know, stories of activists like Enric Duran, for example, who defrauded the Spanish banks to give money to Catalan social movements, and obviously artists who, um, you know, engage in monetary economies in different ways, like uh, the Salvage Art Institute, who, um, salvage economically worthless paintings, um. So, yeah, for me, those stories were really important. But I guess some of the kind of key points that I wanted to make, you know, in the story was that um, tokens are returning. I haven't really given a definition of what a token is versus money. Maybe I should just do that really as quickly as I can. Uh, what do you think? Is that worth doing? Yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, the classic definition of money is something that can be used as a means of exchange, a store of value and a unit of count, as uh, some people add a away- to pay taxes to that list because money, like real money tends to be issued and guaranteed by the state or sovereign. But tokens is the term I use for all the moneyish things that circulate alongside state-backed money. So Bitcoin, book vouchers, Amazon gift cards, food stamps, phone credit, in-game currencies, and NFTs, all examples of tokens. And those tokens are less than money in some ways. So they can be used by specific people for specific things you know, in a specific time or place. So they often come with strings attached. So if you think of an example of that, um, something like gift balances um, that are used to pay Amazon Mechanical Turk workers um, or beer tokens in a student union bar that doesn't have an alcohol license uh, are both examples of these sort of tokens that are, you know, have, have sort of restrictions around how they're used. But I'd also argue, and I do in the book, that in many ways, tokens are also more than money. So they're also used online to pay, but people use them to do things like communicate, to bond with other people, to troll, to flex, and so on. Uh, so, for example, Dogecoin, you know, which we've probably heard a lot about with Elon Musk, is used. was historically used to tip other users online for funny content. Um, in-game currencies are used often to brag or to demonstrate status to other gamers. So they're not just used to pay, you know, so they kind of more or less. Um, But some of the points then that I kind of wanted to make in the book then about these tokens, as well as sort of telling stories, was that, you know, we're in a period of change where money is concerned. So because media technology, I suppose money is sort of riding the rails of these information and communication technologies, we're seeing a proliferation of these new kinds of tokens. Um, uh, I think I mentioned I'm sort of have a, my academic background is kind of in like STS, our science and technology studies. And technology studies looks at like the social and political implications of technologies and why and how technologies take the shape that they did. Um, so I'm sort of looking at, you know, why do particular money technologies take the shape that they did? Um, and in the beginning, scholars of technologies often argue a new technology has what's called interpretive flexibility. So it might take different forms or be used for different things and different groups at different times. But over time, a new technology tends to achieve what scholars call closure, and those competing interpretations start to disappear. Uh, a classic example of that is that's often used as like the bicycle. <laughs> Um, apparently, when the bicycle was first invented, you had loads of different kinds of bicycles and multiple users and considerations for what bikes were for. And gradually, there's one then universally accepted model for the bicycle. And you don't see, you know, too many penny farthings outside of Williamsburg. Um. So once the technology achieves closure, its debates stay hidden. Um. But sometimes those debates re-emerge because something breaks down in a technology or because there's a crisis of some sort. And I think arguably we're in that kind of moment of interpretive flexibility with regards to money. So things like the crash in 2008 and even the pandemic, I think, caused a lot of people to question what money is and could be. And so we're rethinking what money is right now. Um, As I said, today, platforms are developing and issuing tokens. They're not quite the same as state-backed money. But they're used for all the things that money is used for. So to pay, to store value, to keep account, to speculate and to so on. Um, But I think also, you know, they have these other kind of facets as well. So they're they're a regulatory sleight of hand for the platform, for example. They can be a way for the platform to sort of act as an employer and a payments processor without formally being either because, because they're this thing that that is, you know, is not quite money, this kind of deniable as, as a form of payment. Um they're a way often to capture control new streams of value in things like consumer data or identity or trust. And also, I think crucially, they're increasingly a way to kind of program or determine conditions surrounding financial inclusion or behavior at the behest of the state or the platform. So new tokens are often, often come kind of with conditions programmed into them so they can be used to survey or profile users or condition their behaviors. Um, So, I mean, I don't know, just to give examples of that, I think... You know, various different countries are experimenting at the moment with um, a state backed kind of form of digital currency. And quite a lot of those digital currencies look at sort of issuing different sorts of conditions into into the money at the point of issuance, whether that's that the money is somehow attached to your identity. So only you, Bernarda, can use it or whether um, it monitors things like potential tax evasion or includes various different sorts of, of values, such as whether or not you send your children to schools or get vaccinated. Um, I'm probably jumping around a little bit there, but I think you know these are some of the key things then that the book is looking at, and that we're sort of witnessing maybe a battle for control of money and payments between the state and the platform today uh, around these sorts of tokens.
0: And is that the main the main message that you want to, to send with throughout the book, you know, do we have this this um not confrontation but this this tension between um money issued by an authority and these tokens and, and what is going to predominate within that that space.
1: Yeah I guess when I set out to write it I definitely thought That the key kind of issue was about this sort of battle for control of money and payments between the state and the platform that, you know, historically, the state, you know, has a monopoly over two things. And one is that those is money issuance and the other is war. And that increasingly platforms were sort of entering into this space and kind of usurping the state in terms of at least de facto kind of money issuance and banking. Um. But I don't know, I guess, you know, I definitely by the time I'd finished writing it, I I definitely wasn't wasn't sort of sure about where where that sort of where that battle kind of has ended or, or where the where the power sort of lies. So, you know, I guess one of the key moments and it's discussed in the book is when Facebook announced that it was going to issue its own token in 2019. I think a lot of people thought at that moment that the battle had been fought and won. By platforms, you know, that platforms are basically going to become banks. But instead, you know, we saw a real pushback by the state, so stronger regulation, the development of proposals, then for state-backed digital currencies, CBDCs has worked to suppress the expectation that platforms are going to issue and guarantee money in the future. So I think where the balance falls is still unclear. Um, in China, for example. Alipay and WeChat Pay, so two incredibly powerful and popular payments apps, have experienced quite strong regulation as well by the Chinese government, particularly because they were seen to compete with the government's launch of the digital yen. But yet, I think from what I understand anyway, most people still continue and prefer to use the former applications than the state pilots. So I don't know, even though we have strong regulation of payments and crypto in recent months, particularly in the U.S., Platforms continue to shape money in in all sorts of ways and sometimes in unexpected ways. Like in recent years, we've seen a number of market events driven by social media sentiment, like the famous example, obviously, is the GameStop short squeeze in 2021, which is driven by online influencers and meme economies. But more recently, even things like the collapse, I think, of you know, um of FTX or Silicon Valley Bank are both driven in part by viral activity on Twitter, that kind of light speed expression of sentiment or algorithmic contagion that regulators can't begin to incorporate into their risk. So maybe it's also that platforms are shaping money or shaping markets in other unintended ways that that we really need to think about. Um, I think it's a really fascinating area because it is so unresolved. And it's also, for me, it's kind of unclear who's Well, maybe no, maybe it's not unclear. But both, it seems like both the state and the platform seem to have pretty awful plans in terms of what they're going to do with programmable money. Unfortunately.
0: um, Thanks, um, um, Rachel. And so, would would you care to elaborate this last comment as to why you think that they have these evil plans for for the plans for the future?
1: I guess um, I. I have a chapter in the book called Programmable Butter, and it's kind of inspired by a, a social welfare um, token that was issued in Ireland uh, in the 1980s and 1990s, where, you know, the country was economically um, very poor, um, called the Butter Voucher. And the Butter Voucher basically, you know, it was like a food stamp and entitled people to a pound of butter. And what always intrigued me about Butter Vouchers was the minute that you... The minute you say Butter Voucher, particularly in Dublin, everyone just immediately starts, everyone over a certain age, I should say, you know, who's old enough to remember Butter Vouchers immediately pipes up and starts telling you about all the things you could buy with Butter Vouchers and where, you know, they have these kind of mental maps in their head of the shops that would accept Butter Vouchers for like cigarettes, for Buckfast, for beer. You know, it's hilarious, like, um, they're kind of informally called backy vouchers. So even though they had terms and conditions attached to them, and and you know, we have all sorts of special tokens that have those strings attached, I guess, like special money. Um there were always ways around those special conditions, you know, and there were shopkeepers that would turn a blind eye uh to those terms and conditions. And 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 the poor had sort of ways of of yeah, of of kind of there was a, a little bit of agency, I guess, still in terms of the, of, the, of those tokens and the values that were written into them. I think what really worries me now with the sort of future of programmable payments is we're seeing the same values being sort of hard coded into the tokens in ways where there actually is no, there's none of that wriggle room. Anymore, So take, for example, something like the SNAP benefits program in the US, you know, which is electronic. So it's just very much computer says no, in terms of what you can and can't buy. There's not really that sort of same wiggle room. And I think the way things are going, you know, with many of the proposals for CBDCs, at least in Europe, um, it seems like the sort of pilot proposals include various forms of programmability at issuance uh, around for example identity um but also around you know compliance with um yeah various sorts of things i mean generally you know it's 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 kind of couched at the moment in terms of things like money laundering or terrorism but I don't think it's too much of a stretch to sort of imagine a situation where something like uh, Bolsa Familia, for example, in Brazil, where there's kind of conditional cash transfers based on school enrollments or vaccination could be rolled into a a CBDC kind of scenario where, um, yeah, money issuance gets tied up with with values. And I guess, you know, the big question then is who who gets to who gets to decide what those values are, who gets to sort of write them or code them in? to our tokens. Uh, is it the state? I've talked a lot about the state, or is it the platform where often the um the only incentive is 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 profiteering, you know, where, where the bottom line is isn't about welfare in any way or about some kind of state incentive, but it's is literally just about, you know, how much, how can I monetize this person's data, for example, or, you know, how can I underwrite credit more efficiently? Um,
0: and, and in a way, I think your comments are making echo of the um, public uh, comment from Sarah Breeden in the last week. She's uh, shortly to become the deputy governor of the Bank of England in charge of the digital pound work as, as we're speaking. And, and she said that the planned launch of the digital pound has been met with um, concerns about privacy and, and state control and and i think that in a way you are giving a different interpretation of this and saying well it's not only about the liberty or the decision to pay or not pay taxes which which is something that is not that something that the individual should do but should have the option of doing it or not but there are these other softer things that individuals are doing or can do as you are describing is maps where to do it where not that might be disappearing or requires or as also as you said who's who's you know how how do we program what can be and cannot be done and and who's um in charge of 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 doing that programming um but let, let's go back to the book a little bit because i think we've, we've gone a little bit of, of of courses uh and and how how did you select it the examples and the evidence to support those examples that you are bringing out uh, throughout the book, as, as you have, you know, a very rich number of examples to move these ideas of of tokens through through the book.
1: Um, I guess the book is it's based on you know over ten years of 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 research in what we now call the fintech space, where the business of money and the business of the internet collide, and throughout that time. I participated, I guess, in projects designed. Like I sort of came to money maybe slightly from an activist perspective, so I was sort of drawn to it as well, initially quite naively, with the belief that maybe we could redesign money, um, to make a better society. But I quickly became quite disillusioned, actually, with activist spaces. And so there is maybe there's a little bit of an autoethnographic. A perspective kind of coming through where I'm sort of reflecting then on my experiences within that kind of activist space. So I participated in projects designed to like hack the financial system from activists who wanted a basic income for everyone to think tanks using blockchain for social good. And then, as I mentioned, I think earlier, the more extreme end of things like figures defrauding banks or gaming financial markets to give money to the poor, that kind of Robin Hood model. And at first, you know, like I said, I, I I was saw myself as a fellow activist, but then I, I sort of withdraw, withdrew from those spaces. I just felt too often that activists seemed to think that the right society could be magically coined with the right token or the newest technology. And yeah, too often activists sort of preached some kind of perfect equality or non-hierarchical hierarchical organization. So that decentralization of power or dis- disintermediation that we hear so much about with Bitcoin and Web3 and yet then the same old bros were always in charge um, so there's that sort of engagement I guess with the activist space um, as a former well you know somebody who's sort of involved with curating and you know teaching artists and, and and kind of engaging with digital art I was drawn then to the strange connections between money blockchain and art so from early experiments like in 2014 to the ICO buzz in 2017, you know, CryptoKitties, and then the NFT bubble in 2021. So over the past nine years or so, I've interviewed artists tokenizing their work, companies who are listing works of art on the blockchain. I visited a freeport in Geneva, it's a kind of high security bank that stores art assets owned by the super rich. And just yeah, generally, I spent a summer kind of in about twenty eighteen with um, graduate students, actually in in um, the Institute for Money and what is it, IMTFI Institute for uh, Money and Technology. Oh, I forget.
0: And you, financial inclusion. And
1: financial inclusion, but like never remember exactly how they go together. Um, but sort of deciphering the smart contract code that made Crypto Kitties and. I teach an elective now called Art and Money to Students in NCAD, where I work. Um, and then I guess from the beginning of my research, and this was quite influenced by, you know, Bill Maurer, who's maybe whose work on payments, infrastructures and rails, we've sort of been echoing earlier. Um, um, Yeah, from sort of engaging with him and Lana Swartz early on, I guess, in my research, uh, I was encouraged to really involve myself in the fintech industry. So attending expos like Money 2020 and meetups, sitting in on things like standard committees or workshops on algorithmic credit scoring. And I think participating in the industry in that way gives you a real insight into how money is being shaped now and in the future. Those are the spaces where the industry is really constituting itself. And there's plenty of bravado, but there's often a lot more truth-telling Because the speakers tend to assume that everyone in the audience thinks and feels the way they do. Um, And yeah, then I spent a lot of time in online culture of digital money. So like speaking to gamers who trade virtual loot and the developers who design in-game economies. I was lucky one of my brothers is very involved in the game industry. So he was kind of able to hook me up with people to talk to and just basically lurked on message boards for sites like OnlyFans or Twitch to find out how streamers were turning their online tokens or wish lists or gifts into cash. And I guess finally then I did a real deep dive into the history of tokens um, just from secondary sources like uh, Claire Rowan's kind of collected um, historical work on tokens, for example. Um, So there's really rich work on tokens in early agrarian economies. And the political tokens of Athenian democracy. Again, Bill Maurer's done really interesting work on that. Charitable tokens used as AMS in the 14th century. You know, Viviana Zelitzer's work on women's pin money in the 20th century. What's so striking about that history of tokens isn't that those sorts of money, like things are so different from today's tokens, like Amazon gift balances or Snap benefits or Dogecoin. It's that they share a lot of common ground. And, um, you know, there's so much in common. And I guess the last historical source then was I looked at a lot of archives. Like I looked at the Cypherpunk and Extropian mailing lists. So two early Internet forums that shaped very much the future of Bitcoin. And the chat there blends sort of free market economics and digital cash with very earnest discussions about immortality and seasteading in mind, uploading. So, you know, it's very entertaining, I guess. Um. Yeah, that was sort of so it's kind of it's, it's it's kind of a bit of a a bit of a mishmash, I guess, depending on, on the area. Um, so kind of mixed methods, I suppose. Yeah.
0: Thank you. So and how do you decide it on, on the chapters? And did you have to learn something new yeah. or you had to um deep deeper as as you're putting the, the chapters together and say, well, I, I'm having these gaps here how we're yeah. going to cover
1: it. Yeah, I guess um, I I think I'd had various different ideas maybe about a book like this for a while. And then I'd also written some articles in the past. So I'd done like a, a journal article on the history of transactional data surveillance and I'd written several different papers about kind of surveillance of transactions. So I sort of knew oh, I, I want to a chapter about money as data, uh, definitely in there. Um, I really saw them as kind of separate essays in a way, rather than as something that built. Um, yeah, so I knew I had different kind of points that I wanted to make. I think the one I did, I did probably th- more archival research into, um, into kind of the history of trust and the code for the book. And I, I'd really hoped actually uh, to go to Nevada and visit blockchains. So that's sort of a city or it was a proposal for a smart city run entirely on blockchain. Um, in the end I couldn't because of some kind of, um, family kind of illness and issues that kind of kept me at home, but, um, I'd hoped to sort of have a, a case study where I was a bit more on the ground there, um that that would have been one of the main things. I guess I did more kind of historical or archi- archival work throughout. Um when I was looking at uh history of kind of money activism, I really enjoyed looking back more to the history of American anarchism and experiments with money within that and just finding how much kind of a of a crossover there was between some of those ideas and the kind of Silicon Valley Web three ideologies today.
0: Interesting, and um, you know, in this very long project, of nine ten years, what sort of things were left out that you would have liked to add in the book, but but you didn't?
1: Um, I think like it's really good. Um, as a writer, as a researcher, not to be too precious. That's something they always tell you in. Art college, anyway, not be, don't be precious about your work. So be, be, be able to let things go, you know, and not have to hold on to everything. Um. So I probably, with you know, the benefit of 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 time now, there's not much that I actually feel like. Oh, that should have really, I would really like to put that in. Um, I did, I did delete. I suppose just off the top of my head, I know I had a very long exploration of the history of trust in the code of that idea and that I ended up deleting so looking at for example the ideas of William Petty who who's you know the developer of a political arithmetic the idea that you can use numbers or maths to sort of rationalize and govern better um I looked quite a lot at his work and um Yeah, took a bit of a detour, I guess, and started looking at also how his ideas were instrumentalized within Ireland. So um, as well as sort of writing political arithmetic, Petty also tested those ideas out. He was um, invited to sort of do a survey of Ireland shortly after um, it was sort of colonized and, and the land was seized by the British and and used the ideas within political arithmetic to sort of rationalise how the land could be made productive and how people could be made productive and how the British could govern better. And in some ways, you know, it's a kind of a a model of like a colonialism light that was sort of applied in Ireland and then applied by sort of by British rule much more um excessively and much more violently in other places. And it was, you know, it was sort of a, a mathematical rationality that um resulted within Ireland, I guess, in the famine, but um, obviously in huge atrocities in many different places. Uh, Yeah. And it's a bit of a digression, you know, I did not need to go into tokens. Um, I was interested in how some of those ideas, I guess, those rationalities um, reappear in in blockchain. You know, the idea that we can sort of use um, numbers to govern in a disinterested way. You know, if we just take all the messy humans out of things, um, we can kind of we can go from better. Things
0: better. Yes. Um and uh, just a, f- a final question, uh Rachel. What are you working on now? What is the next project?
1: Oh, um, yeah, I guess I'm kind of obsessed at the moment with um yeah, I'm a little obsessed with sort of influencer economies. Um I'm quite interested in things like trad-wise. Um So, yeah, I'm interested in the growing role of social media to meme markets, which I suppose we spoke about a minute ago. So whether that's viral contagion on X or Twitter or the role of, you know, Finfluencers like the Money Witch on Instagram, or I don't know if you came across NPC streamers like Pinky Doll on TikTok recently. Um, so she's very similar to... In chapter one of the tokens book, I'm writing about streamers who make money on Twitch um, by performing over the summer. There was kind of a, a bit of a, a breakout moment where a TikTok performer called Pinky Doll um, who gets paid in virtual gifts to just kind of repeat phrases verbatim in exchange for little virtual tokens became kind of internet famous beyond TikTok. And I was really uh, intrigued, I guess, when TikTok streamers and virtual gifts had a viral moment then this summer, because Tokens opens with an exploration of that kind of precarious economy of Twitch bits and the streamers who are in a living on those platforms. I haven't seen much written about those kinds of gift economies. So it was really exciting for me to see them get some kind of mainstream attention. Um, so I guess I'm looking at the moment at these moments where tokens intersect with some sort of influencer or content creation online. Often it's a way to be paid for work that's disguised to look like something other than real work. So wages, for example, for trad wives doing housework and shilling sponsored content or Amazon gifts for streamers on TikTok or treats in the form of mobile cash transfers for stay-at-home girlfriends to get their nails done. You know, yeah, I guess it, it's sort of blending maybe the the more mainstream parts of digital online culture with some of the more established theories around earmarking and money and the kind of social life of money so I guess if I were to work on another book that's probably where I'd like to start and I've made a little sub stack for myself where I'm kind of testing those ideas out uh, in just very short pieces.
0: Well that will be great book to read as well, and hope to have you back when when it's out here at New Books Network. Um, Rachel O'Doyer, um, thank you for this very interesting chat and this fascinating book, uh, Tokens, and uh, thank you for making the time to be with us in New Books Network.
1: Thanks a million, Bernardo
0: and uh, thank you for our li- to our listeners for being with us today if uh, you haven't subscribed do subscribe to our podcast and if you're a subscriber send us a note give us a score all of those things are always helpful thank you very much